0: Let's again join together in prayer, let's pray. Father, as we now turn to your word, we ask for your help, for your empowering in our speaking and listening, for your equipping and enabling in our obeying, that you would speak and we would walk where you would have us walk, do what you would have us do, and serve as you would have us serve to your glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you were here last Sunday evening, you know that Scott left us in a pretty sorry state. Uh, things are bad in Israel. The army has been defeated heavily by the Philistines, Hophni and Phineas, The sons of Eli have been killed in that battle. The wife of Phineas has died in childbirth. Eli also has died, learning of the greatest of all the tragedies to occur on that fateful day that the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, has been captured. And all of this calamity after calamity is, in a way, summed up in the name that's given to the little boy who was born in the midst of all this death, Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel. And I suppose if you look back into chapter 4, for all its darkness and doom, that, that little glimmer of hope still appears. That little theme of the early uh, chapters of 1st Samuel. That the hope for all the world will be found in the cry of a newborn baby boy. And into the midst of this sin-darkened, death-dominated world. God would send a deliverer to deal with the mess and the mire of our sin. God would so love the world that he would send his son to see him. That who believe in him might not perish but have life that lasts forever. God is working in his world. And in this tragedy in this crushing battle that has been experienced by the Israelites, we must also learn a a very important lesson for God's people of each and every age. Yes, the Philistines have defeated God's people, but this is not because of their superior weaponry or uh, greater numbers. These things are irrelevant. No enemy can defeat God's people except the cause of that defeat, arise among the people themselves. thought briefly this morning, that little idea of autoimmune diseases that, that attack the body. And the only way that God's people can ever be defeated is when we ourselves inflict that defeat upon ourselves. Back again in the uh, fourth chapter, after that early and initial smaller defeat, uh, the people of Israel asked a very good question. 1 Samuel 4, verse 3, they said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They understood, they recognized that God and God alone could bring about such a defeat, such a calamity. Only the withdrawal of his shield of protection could cause an enemy to... To overcome them and prevail against them. And today we in the church have Jesus' great promise. He says, I will build my church and the gates of of hell shall not prevail against it. Or that little verse we started our, our, our time together with, Isaiah 54 verse 17. No weapon that's fashioned against you shall succeed. These are truths for every age. We must understand that in the ebb and flow of, of battle, whether in the Old Testament or facing the church in the world today. Lighthouse effect. here. Uh, sorry about that. But in the battles that face the world today, God's people cannot be conquered. Defeat for Israel is only possible through their sinful choices. The world cannot conquer the church today. And should a congregation die, it will be because of their own sinful choices. It's because the members themselves have sentenced that church to death. And as we turn uh, to this passage and to consider it together, I I want to look at three little areas. The interaction between uh, the Ark of God and the Philistines in general, the interaction between the Ark of God and Dagon, and then finally the Ark of God and the cities. Just to try and gain a few points from each of those. Firstly, the Ark and the Philistines. I'm sure many of you have visited Ward Park in Bangor. Yeah, great place, Bangor. Well, in the heart of Ward Park, most of you will know, stands a a gun that was taken from U-19, a a German submarine. And it was taken to commemorate the victory in the Battle of Jutland, 1916. And maybe you've had the opportunity to clamber and climb on that uh, gun. For some of you, it have been a few years ago. But uh, I've clambered over every inch of it, swung from its barrel, and done all kinds of strange things on that gun. But the message of the gun as it stands still today in, in Ward Park and Bangor is this. It cries out loud that the weapon you sought to use against us is now our trophy of war our symbol of victory. And thus it was in this chapter for the Philistines with the ark of the Lord. This this ark that they had so feared when its presence had been announced in the camp of the Israelites now is in their possession. And they're assuming that it's theirs to use as they would choose. It's their uh, symbol of triumph. So we read uh, Samuel 5, 1 and 2. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Just two uh, little moments to think about biblical background. Firstly, what is the Ark of God? Well, or we call sometimes the Ark of the Lord, Ark of the Covenant. It's just a wooden box covered in gold. And in it are three things, the the tablets that Moses brought from the mount with the commandments from God, Aaron's rod was in there, and a jar of manna. It was covered with a a lid that had two cherubim, and it was believed that above the cherubim uh, was the unseen presence of the invisible God. It was his resting place. Now, it was not a weapon to be wielded by the Israelites or by anyone else. Rather, it was to be to the people a symbol how they were to make their approach to God. It contained in its heart the perfect standards of his law that that we fall so far short of. And, And so the only way it was to be approached was by bringing a sacrifice of blood to cover the sins of the people. So there's this box, the Ark of God, and then there's these people, the Philistines. Who were they? Well, it's believed that they were seafaring people who had traveled around the Mediterranean and coming to the fertile shores of the area along the shores of the Mediterranean in modern-day Israel. They decided this would be a good place to settle and put down roots. And they were people clever with their hands and clever with their intentions. They were at the forefront of then Iron Age technology. And their strategic plan, unlike that of the conquering Israelites when they returned from Egypt into uh, the Promised Land, God instructed them to wipe out every nation that stood in their way, all those various ites that you read of uh, in the book of uh, Exodus and Numbers, etc., The Israelites were to slaughter them, but that wasn't the way for the Philistines. They were to embed themselves through assimilation. They were to consume other nations into their community. And you know, for a great many years, I wondered about the character of Samson. Have you ever wondered about Samson? How on earth did Samson ever make it onto a list of heroes of the faith? For, to generalize, there's only two things really you need to know about Samson, only really two things that he did. And one was that he chased after dodgy women, and the other one was that he picked fights. And that's not exactly a very good role model for a young Christian man. But we need to understand that Samson served a very bespoke purpose in the history of Israel. And it seems that almost single-handedly, he stirred up centuries of hostility between Israel and the Philistines. Until the arrival of Samson on the scene, the two nations coexisted quite happily. And slowly but surely, the Israelites were becoming beholden to the Philistines for their technological skills. And we'll read more of that in, in, in future sermons. But slowly and surely, the impact of Philistia and the Philistines was uh, harmfully transforming the nation of Israel. Then came Samson, God's gift to a a childless couple, a childless elderly couple. And he picked the fight that led to the full-scale war that raged on through the reigns of Saul and David. So we, we, we look at these people, these Philistines, and in, them, and in the, the verses we read tonight, we can see something of, of the ordinary people of the world around us today. Because they had a measure of respect for the God of Israel. They took this ark that symbolized his presence and they gave it a place of honor uh, 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 alongside the deity of their choice, Dagon. In his temple, they found a, a niche for the ark of God. They found in their lives an available space for him to fit into. And no wonder they recognized the power of this God. He had enabled his people to overthrow the might of Egypt, the most powerful nation of that age. And a God like that is worth having on your side, on your team. And they thought to themselves, well... Why not more gods? The more gods, the merrier. Surely two gods are better than one. And so a place was given for the ark. We need to allow that image, that message to challenge our hearts. For sadly, it's true of many people that they haven't turned their back on God, but they still have only given him a little place in their lives. They fit him in into the busy routine in which they engage. They have a little slot for him that uh, is just right for him, but then they rush on to the more important things. Yes, they have time for God, but it's not that he's given the primary and preeminent place. And we need to remind ourselves and you that God will not allow people to worship him with any half measure. God will not allow such a dishonoring attitude. In Exodus 20 verse 3, uh, the first of the commandments, God clearly declares, you shall have no other gods before me or beside me. God is not going to settle for being squeezed into a five-minute slot in your busy day. He's not going to accommodate himself to when It's suitable for you to make room in your diary for him. He is not going to allow himself to be like a little life mascot that you carry around and uh, you look to when things might be getting difficult. In his book on the Ten Commandments, Kevin DeYoung pictures it like this. He writes, Suppose a husband came home and said, Honey, it's good to see you. I want to introduce you to someone very special to me. Don't get me wrong, you're also special to me. But I've met someone else. She's lovely. And I'm going to spend some time with her, but also a lot of time with you. I think the two of you will get along just fine. You'll be great friends. You both mean so much to me. Now you can write the end of that story yourself. That's not going to end well. As Hudson Taylor famously said, Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. He doesn't come into our lives to serve our purposes. He's not some heavenly butler at our beck and call. He comes as Lord. And we must bow to him. He comes and demands our wholehearted devotion." And if we do not worship him here and now with all we have, we will fall in fear before him then and face judgment. And truth is, many people treat Jesus as the Philistines treated the ark. Squeeze him in whenever you can. Fit him into your schedule. But it cannot be. It must not be. This is a painful lesson the Philistines were about to learn. And we come to really what is quite an amusing part of the story. You're allowed to find this funny. Let me read it again to you. Verses 2 to 5. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. It was a Fairly obvious assumption for them to make with their limited understanding that if the Philistines had defeated the Israelites, well then the God of the Philistines, Dagon, is better than the God of the Israelites, Yahweh. But any such attempt to to linger on that interpretation is swiftly swept aside. Day one of the cohabitation of Dagon and Yahweh finds that Dagon, his image, is lying prostrate on on the floor of the the temple before the ark. And note the narrator, just to rub things in, tells us that that poor old Dagon had to be helped back into his place. Uh, He was put back where he belonged. In a later day, in writing of the non-gods of Babylon, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and says in Isaiah 46, 1 to 7, he says, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to grey hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. To whom will you liken me? And to make me equal and compare me that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it on their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble message of Isaiah is that if your God has to be carried about from place to place, then when you cry out for help to him, you're in for a big disappointment. Day one, Dagon has fallen, he's set back in his place, day two is a Humpty Dumpty day. Once again, the image of Dagon lies prostrate before the ark of God, but this time he's dismembered, his head is torn off, his hands are broken off, and he could not be put back together again. Once might have been a freak accident, but twice with this added insult of dismembering. This was clearly something else. And we note that these events were not forgotten, as the writer says, the narrator says, that even up to this day, the people still remember how Dagon's head and hands lay on the threshold. Even still, they remember how he had been defeated before Yahweh. Again, we need to be reminded, we need to be challenged, we need to think and apply this to our own hearts. That the little gods, the false gods of this world, must Fall before Yahweh, the only true and ever living God. Again, the words of Isaiah 44:19 and 20 are filled with irony, mock- mocking those who worship idols. God speaks through the prophet and says, Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Is it not a lie in my right hand? The gods we hold to, are they true gods? Where does your hope rest? In what does your confidence lay? What gives you security in your days? To who or to what are you giving your worship? 1 Samuel 5, 7 says, When the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is hard against us and against our God. The experience of Yahweh's presence in the midst of the Philistines reminds us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And he is a God upon whom we must find our lives, build our lives. He, the rock of our salvation, or else he falls on us to crush us, to Burden us with his weight. The NIV says that the God of Israel is heavy against us. Crushing the very life from the Philistines. We need to be reminded again of the the supremacy and the sufficiency of God that he rules and reigns. Look again that before Samuel really gets into his years of ministry and leadership in the nation, before kings could be anointed and set in place to lead the people into battle, God reveals clearly that he is more than able to look after himself. He's more than able to stand up for himself. He doesn't need anybody to fight his battles. You're praying this morning, it's... An encouraging season. We have 12 young men commencing training for ministry in the Presbyterian Church, and we're rightfully thankful and encouraged by this. But you know, we've got to always be careful and realize that uh, just because we have uh, good and godly men in training, we don't assume that, that the Church of Jesus Christ will be okay now because we've got these people. God didn't need Samuel. God didn't need Saul. God doesn't need David. God doesn't need me. God doesn't need you to build his church. God doesn't need you to bring honor to his name or to fight his battles. Yes, as we were thinking this morning, he delights to allow us and to invite us into a share of his work in the world, but he is not dependent on us, and our failures do not frustrate his purposes. God is a big God. He works in this world and his kingdom will come. I've shared before that uh, an apologies to those who who find help and comfort in that little story of footsteps. And you know that little punchline whenever uh, the beleaguered person asks why there was only one set of footsteps in the hardest and trying times of life? Uh, And God explains, or Jesus explains, that when there's only one set of footsteps, that's when I was carrying you. And that's such an inadequate and unhelpful image. Because we need to understand that if there was ever a time when we were able to walk on our own and manage by ourselves, well then we were hopeless and lost. Always we depend upon God to be carrying us. Look at those words again of Isaiah 46. It says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to grey hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry and see it. Finally to look at the ark and the cities. The presence of the ark of God caused great panic in these cities. The life of Ashdod was thrown into, into just turmoil. And then the, 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 they shared the blessing of the ark with Gath. And things became really bad there. And then news comes that Ekron are next to the line. And the people were in uh, terror. And we're not sure exactly what this means, but uh, it's likened in some ways to some sort of bubonic plague that breaks out wherever the ark goes. There are rats everywhere, tumors coming on people's body. It was not a good situation. But we ought to understand that this is what happens in a world that is destined to sinful choices. Paul writes in Romans 1, 18 and 19, saying, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. These people acknowledged the greatness of this God who had been instrumental in the defeat and overthrow of Egypt, but they would not worship him as God alone. And so they faced the heaviness, the burden of his punishment and presence with them. Verse 11, then they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The hand of God was very heavy there. You need to know a little bit of Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word heavy is chavot. At the end of the last chapter, we saw that a child was born. He was given that terrible name in Hebrew, Ich chavot. No glory. There was no glory, Ich chavot, in Israel. But in this chapter we discover that there was glory, there was chavod in Philistia. Because there the true God revealed his presence and his power. It was revealed as a heaviness upon them. The word for glory, the word for heavy are the same word, chavod. And these Philistines in their foolishness had sought for self-glorification at the expense of Yahweh. And for this they had paid a high price. We, as you all know, we are made to glorify God and in doing so to enjoy him forever. That's the purpose. That's the reason God breathed life into us. To bring glory to God that uh, uh, to our lives should be appended as it was to the manuscripts of uh, of Bach or Handel. S-D-G, sola de gloria, to glory of God alone. Our lives are lived to God's glory. Nothing else will do. A minister, and this is a true story. A minister in the United States was contacted by a man who wanted to make a donation to the congregation in which he was the pastor, a large congregation, a large donation. And he contacted the minister and said, "I want to give you around about a million dollars." The minister said, "Wow, that's a lot of money." Let me first go and pray about this. So he did. And as he prayed, his heart was uneasy. And as he prayed, the message from God's word that came to him again and again was Genesis 14. Hopefully you know that story where Abraham comes back from the rescue of Lot and he's overthrown these various kings and he's collected the bounty of war and he refuses to accept any payment. Because he he says in in Genesis 14, "I, I don't want it to be said that you made Abraham rich. Abraham wanted it to be that God and God alone blessed his life. So the minister went to this rich benefactor and said, Thank you for the offer, but I can't accept it. I prayed about this. I am not at peace about this. I don't want it to be said that you have built this church church by the way went on to prosper greatly we've got to ask where does the glory come from and to who does the glory and honour belong we've got to ask what is preeminent in your life who and what rules in your heart who sets the agenda for your days who controls your thinking who consumes your passion when your life is reviewed who will receive the glory John's Gospel tells us that those who have seen Jesus have seen his glory. The one who is full of grace and truth comes to us, that we would worship him and serve him. The true God who loved us and gave himself for us, that we should seek to serve him and glorify him all our days. Let's pray together. Father, help us to see and understand that we live in a world of many gods, false gods, empty idols, but they consume so much passion and purpose, so much energy and effort, so much time and money, poured out in devotion to these things that are of no value and of no worth in eternity. Lord, may we have the eyes to see the idols of this world. May we know the truth of our hearts, that they are idol factories and so swift to turn our service and desire from you to things. Lord, these stories of your people in centuries past are written to tell us again and again that we are vulnerable, we are fallible in these areas. We can worship that which is passing, that which is of no worth. We can expend our lives in self-glorification. Forgive us, we ask. May we give you that premier place in our heart May we live our lives sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. May we live our lives to honor the name of Jesus, that he would be supreme. Lord, may we be rightly oriented as your spirit works, speaking through your word to our hearts, directing us to fix our eyes on him, to give him all our praise, all our honor, all that is due to his name, We have seen his glory. May we worship it with all we have and are. Amen.